Welcome to the end of the innocence, the JFK assassination. I'm your host, John Young. In this week's episode, we're going to pick up the motorcade as it left Love Field and headed towards downtown Dallas. What role did the Dallas police play in the security of the motorcade that day? But first, we're going to look at two incredible stories. One woman that predicted the assassination, and the other one knew that it would happen. Madeline Duncan Brown was the longtime mistress of President Lyndon Baines Johnson. This was not a well-kept secret, as everyone knew about the affair, including Lyndon Johnson's wife, Lady Bird. Brown met Lyndon Johnson back in 1948, when the politician was still a Texas congressman. Their affair lasted 20 years and produced a son named Stephen Brown. Brown would come clean about the affair at a press conference in 1982 after the Dallas Morning News ran a story about the couple. She would also detail the affair in her book, Texas in the Morning, The Love Story of Madeline Brown. The affair with LBJ would not even come close to being her most interesting claim. Madeline Brown was a 23-year-old radio advertising sales representative when she met Congressman Lyndon Johnson at a station party. A few weeks later, he invited her to another party at the Driscoll Hotel in Austin. And while I was dancing with him uh, there at the Driscoll, he put a key in my hand, and of course I was old enough to know what he was for. Did you, uh, Madeline, have any encounters with LBJ either immediately before or immediately following the assassination of uh, Yes, the morning of the assassination, he was angry, but he was always angry when Ralph Yarbrough and John Conley, there was a political feud going Senator on. Senator Yarbrough of Texas, yes. Governor John Conley of Texas so, at the time. Uh, he um, And I had planned a meeting that night in uh, Austin. We were going to the big fundraiser. And uh, he said, well, after today, the blankety-blank Kennedys would never embarrass him again. That was no threat. That was a promise. And I kind of laughed it off. I said, oh, after the rendezvous, everything's going to be great. Well, Jess Kellum had called me also, and he was telling me. The hatchet man? Yeah, the hatchet man. And I said, oh, Jess, he'll be okay. He's just mad. You know, everything's going to be all right. Why was he so mad at uh, the Kennedys were always putting him down and calling him the country bunkin and, and he just didn't like it. He was they were a stumbling block in his way politically. When he said that to you, did you take it seriously? Not not at that second. I just thought he was mad. Did you talk to him at all after the tragedy after oh, the yes. horrible? I crime? met him. I met him in Austin on New Year's Eve. And um, I, uh, I was real concerned about it because everyone in Dallas was talking about he was responsible for the assassination. So I said to him, Lyndon, I said, you had already told me that after that day, there, you know, the, uh, the Kennedys wouldn't embarrass you again. And um, then Jack Ruby had come out openly and said that Lyndon Johnson was the cause of it. So I said, I've got to be in my mind. I've got to put things to rest. And he had a temper fit. He blew up and just screamed and hollered. And, and then he calmed down. And he turned around 
And he said, at that time, it was the oil people I knew and the CIA. Wait, are you saying that Lyndon Johnson, was he now president of the United States? Yes. Said to you personally. Yes. You swear this. Swear. That the oil people and the CIA were involved in the murder of John Kennedy. Yes. LBJ said that to you. Yes. Was it just the two of you alone? Yes. You sure it's not that the passage of years have made your no. memory foggy? No, no, no. You're not embellishing this tale now? No. You sit here today and you claim that LBJ said the oil people and the CIA... Scouts honor. ...killed the president. Right. Do you believe that your former paramour, Lyndon Johnson, had anything at all to do with the death of John Kennedy? No, I did not have anything. Do you believe that he had anything to do with it? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. You do? Yes. As you sit there today, you do? Yes. Did you know what he was talking about? Uh, I knew the people that he named, yes, I certainly did. H.L. Uh, Hunt was a very dear friend of mine, and three days prior to the assassination, H.L. Hunt gave me one of the um, wanted for treason pamphlets, and they just bombarded Dallas with it. And wanted for treason, JFK. Uh -huh. They thought that the liberal president was a treasonous man. Right. Selling so, the country down the river. So I said, H.L., you cannot do the president of the United States that way. And he said, well, hell, I can. I'm the richest man in the world. I can do whatever I want to. But Dallas, Texas was bombarded, and he passed them out personally. Did you meet Jack Ruby Hunter? Um, Lyndon Johnson's attorney introduced me to him. Go on. I'm serious. Where? I was coming out of Neiman Marcus and happened, of course, I knew the attorney, and he was standing talking to Jack Ruby, and he says, I want you to meet um, Jack Ruby. And um, so uh, I wait, started. Wait a second. When was this? Oh, 1952, I think. Way back. Ten yeah. years before the assassination? Oh, yeah. So Lyndon Johnson's attorney, which one? Uh, Jerome Ragsdale. The same guy who wrote you the letter yes. after LBJ died yes. and said that the financial arrangements mm -hmm. would be continued. He was standing with Jack Ruby, you say? Yes. Did you ever tell any of the authorities this? Yes. Who'd you tell? Uh, well, I told, well, not the Warren Commission. They didn't talk to me. On the eve of Kennedy's assassination, she attended a party at this house in North Dallas, the family home of oil billionaire Clint Murkison Sr. There was an extraordinary guest list that night. We had H.O. Uh, Hunt, Murchison, Lyndon Johnson made an appearance. We had Hoover. We had Richard Nixon. Uh, they were the most influential people there. When Lyndon came in, no one was expecting him. So when Lyndon arrived at Clint Murchison's, they all went into a conference room. And you could just feel the the atmosphere. Early the next morning, only a few hours before the assassination, Madeline received a phone call from Johnson, who was back in Fort Worth with Kennedy. Lyndon called me from the Texas hotel, and he was still irate. I said, Lyndon, about last night, and he went to cursing. He, he used foul language all the time, and he said, those Kennedys, he repeated, they will never embarrass me again. That's no threat. That's a promise. And I'd like the entire world to know how I personally feel is the fact Lyndon Johnson knew about the assassination and was a part of it. I had the pleasure of meeting Miss Madeline Brown in 1997 at a conference in Dallas. 
She was a kind, gentle woman and was sharp as a tack. She died at the age of 76 in 2002. Although her claims have been challenged by supporters of LBJ and the Warren Commission, it still gives us some insight as to what could have been happening that weekend in Dallas back in 63. If you think Madeline Brown's story is fascinating, wait till you hear the story of Rose Sharon, the woman who predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy. On November 20, 1963, two days before the assassination of JFK, Louisiana State Police picked up a woman who had received minor abrasions when she was thrown from a car. She was later driven to the state hospital in Jackson, Louisiana. On the way there, she told a state trooper that she had been traveling with two men who were Italians working for the CIA from Florida to Dallas. She also said these men were going to kill JFK in Dallas in two days. Here is her incredible story. Through the credit sequence of Oliver Stone's JFK, we get in segments the story of a woman who's thrown out of a car, abandoned, ends up in a hospital, and warns the people in attendance that President Kennedy is about to be killed in Dallas. She says that these are serious men and somebody has to do something. What not very many viewers realize is that this story was absolutely true and was investigated by Jim Garrison, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and now the review board has released more documents on this remarkable story of this woman who three days in advance predicted that President Kennedy would be killed in Dallas. On November the 20th, 1963, Louise Guillory, a hospital director at Musa General Hospital, called State Trooper Francis Fouget, who worked in narcotics detail. She told him that they had a patient at the hospital who was under the influence. Fouget went over and found a woman named Rose Sheremy in the waiting room outside the emergency room. Musa was a private hospital, so Fouget had to arrange to have her transferred and also to receive a sedative. On the way to the state hospital at Jackson, Louisiana, Rose Sheremy began to relate her remarkable story. She was in route from Florida to Dallas as part of a drug deal. Rose Sheremy was to function as a courier of funds for heroin, which was to be dropped off to her by a seaman coming into the port of Galveston. From there, the three were to proceed to Mexico. At a seedy bar en route called the Silver Slipper Lounge, an argument ensued, and Rose was roughly abandoned by her friends who threw her out. Then while hitching a ride, she was hit by a car driven by a man named Frank Odom. Odom had delivered her to Musa Hospital, where she was picked up by Fouget. While on the way to Jackson, Rose told Fouget that in Dallas, the men had planned to kill Kennedy. According to several witnesses at the hospital, on November the 22nd, Rose again predicted the assassination before it happened. She also told the doctor there that she knew that both Ruby and Oswald had known each other and she had seen them together at Ruby's club. Fouget later also confirmed that she had worked for Jack Ruby. Another employee at the hospital, an intern named Wayne Owen, told his local newspaper in Wisconsin that he and other interns were told of the plot in advance of the assassination. He said that they even heard that one of the men involved was Jack Rubenstein, which was Jack Ruby's real name. Rose also told of that association with Ruby to Dr. Victor Weiss at Jackson Hospital. After the assassination, Fouget told the House Select Committee that he demanded to see Rose Sheremy again to interview her. She told him that her two companions actually seemed to be part of the conspiracy rather than just aware of it. 
Puget then had her story about the drug deal checked out by both local and federal authorities. Fruget then had his superior, Colonel Morgan, call up Captain Wilfritz of the Dallas Police to offer Rose as a witness to his investigation. Morgan told Fruget after the call that Fritz was not interested. So a potentially explosive witness was now turned away in 1963. In 1967, Jim Garrison received several leads about Rose Sheremy from people related to the Jackson Hospital, which is about three hours north of New Orleans. This included a friend of Dr. Victor Weiss, a man named A.H. Magruder. Garrison tracked down Fruget, deputized him, and then asked him to find Sheremy. Fruget found out that she had died in a car accident in 1965. Fruget told the House Select Committee in the next decade that he then found the Silver Slipper Lounge, where Rose had become separated from her two friends in 1963. He found the bartender in attendance the night Rose had walked in. The man's name was Mac Manuel. Fruget displayed the manual, several photos of suspects from the Garrison investigation. Manuel picked out the two men he had seen with Rose Sheremy that night. This is significant because, as we now know, both Cubans were at Guy Bannister's office in New Orleans, and they both knew David Ferry and Clay Shaw. So now, according to this verified Sheremy story, we have a connection between New Orleans and Texas just days prior to the murder of President Kennedy. After the assassination, Rose Sherman's story was kept quiet as an obvious embarrassment to Dallas Police Captain Will Fritz. After all, it was Captain Fritz who told Lieutenant Fruge of the Louisiana State Police that he was not interested in Rose Sherman's story or any information that she may have concerning the assassination of JFK. After the assassination, Rose Sherman contacted the FBI on numerous occasions to tell her side of the story. On September 4, 1965, one month after yet another attempt to contact the FBI with information, Rose Sharon was found dead by a highway near Big Sandy, Texas. Now let's pick back up the motorcade as it leaves Love Field. What was security like along the motorcade? Was the Dallas police involved in security? Was there a military unit called in to assist the Dallas Police and Secret Service for protection of the president? What they call protection of the president is an old skill. I went to Mexico City in 1956 when President Eisenhower went to Mexico City. And by that I mean the security people went there more than a month early to look at every angle of the trip. There are rules and manuals on what we call protection. The Secret Service, that is a organization of limited size, is authorized to call any number of military people. And these are military people who are already trained to augment their forces in a case like this. There's no shortage of people. Ordinarily, a unit of military, I think was called a special group number 113, would have come up from San Antonio, Texas, and would have been deployed all through the streets of Dallas, the important streets of Dallas. That was not done. In fact, the commander was specifically told he wasn't needed. You've all seen the picture of the school book building, you know, where Oswald is supposed to have shot the president. You notice in those pictures there are open windows. If the Secret Service had been there, 
and had done their usual job, none of those windows would have been open. And had anyone opened one of those windows at that time, they would have been on the radio, they would have had a man in that room immediately, and the window would have been closed. You see, that's protection. That didn't take place. In fact, there were no Secret Service people on the ground around Dealey Plaza that afternoon. They were told they were not needed. Instead of going straight down the street and then to the trademark, he made this 90-degree turn and then another very sharp turn in front of the school book depository building. Now, the Secret Service have rules against that. The rules are that if the car is slowed down below 44 miles an hour, you must then protect it fully in other ways, such as not digressing and going around corners and all that, because when you slowed him around that corner, you opened up field of fire from three directions, behind him, to the side, and from in front, and of course he was killed right in that position that had been set up by the selection of that route. A military unit is always called in to assist the Secret Service when there is a presidential motorcade. In this instance, the 113th Military Intelligence Group from Fort St. Houston was to assist in the protection of the president. Two days before Kennedy's arrival in Dallas, Colonel Wright, the leader of the unit, was called by the CIA and he was informed that his unit was not needed, that another local unit was going to be used. Colonel Wright protested this decision, saying this is a huge mistake especially in a known hostile city like Dallas. You need as much protection as you could get. Another unit was never contacted, and no one assisted the Secret Service that day. This is significant because it's standard operating procedure, and this procedure was not followed. Why? The Secret Service, who was responsible for all security arrangements for presidential trips, designed the makeup of the motorcade and route through downtown Dallas to the trademark where the president was to attend a luncheon. The motorcade's route through the downtown Dallas area had been widely publicized in the local papers, with hopes that a large crowd would greet the president. The original route, however, was changed in the early morning, so the motorcade had to make difficult, slow series of turns in Dealey Plaza, a park-like area that marked the western end of downtown Dallas. The problem with the original route was that it would not take the motorcade by the Texas School Book Depository or the grassy knoll where the assassins were waiting. The Dallas Times-Herald was the only newspaper that showed the revised motorcade route. The route took several sharp turns which violated Secret Service procedures and placed the president in a small park area surrounded by tall buildings on one side and shrubs and trees on the other. Surely the Dallas police played a big role in the protection of the president during the motorcade. They really did a good job at Love Field protecting the president. But what happened during the motorcade? Hmm. It's no wonder that a lot of researchers believe that members of the Dallas Police Department were involved in the assassination, or at least involved in helping cover it up. Along with the Secret Service, the Dallas police was responsible for the safety of the president that day. They were also responsible for collecting and processing the evidence from the scene of the murder. Also, they were responsible for the safety of the accused assassin. When the weekend was over, the president was dead, his assassin was dead, and there remain questions regarding evidence to this day. Almost 60 years later, those questions have not been answered. Could any major metropolitan law enforcement agency have been so inept, so careless, and so unprofessional as to allow this tragedy of errors to occur? 
The assassination would not have been attempted without assurance that certain members of the Dallas Police Force were going to cooperate. It's fair to describe the assassination as essentially a no-risk operation. Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig went on a local television show two days after the assassination, stating what he and his officers were told before the assassination. Roger Dean Craig, former Dallas County Deputy Sheriff, winner of the Man of the Year Award in 1960 for law enforcement in recognition of outstanding performance in the line of duty. Where were you on the day of the assassination of John Kennedy? I was standing out in front of the uh, sheriff's office, which at that time was at 505 Main Street. They've moved it since then, but uh, it was at 505 Main Street, directly in front of the front door. Uh, was the motorcade passing that area at that time? No, we had to wait about 15 minutes before the motorcade arrived, but uh, the sheriff had sent us out there that early to wait. Uh, were you merely spectator or you on duty? Uh, well, no, I was on duty, but uh, a couple hours before Kennedy was to arrive, uh, the sheriff called us in, what I call the street people, the plainclothesmen, the detectives, and uh, he instructed us that we were to stand out in front and in no way take part in the security of that motorcade that we were merely spectators and nothing more. Did that seem unusual to you? It did to me at the time because uh, there were so many people around and so few Dallas police officers. This is one of the first things I noticed was the lack of Dallas police officers. There was only a token police presence along the motorcade route. There were 178 officers, including reserves, on the parade route for an estimated 250,000 people. That boils down to one officer for every 1,400 people. In addition, none of the officers, either in the motorcade or on its route, were ever told to be concerned about the estimated 20,000 open windows. Dallas Police Officer Marion Baker had been assigned to ride along the presidential limousine well, was told by his sergeant five or ten minutes before leaving Love Field that no officers would be riding alongside the president's car. Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry told the Warren Commission that Secret Service Agent Winston Lawson cut the number of motorcycles from four on each side of the presidential limousine to two on each side, and then moved them back. Officer Billy Joe Martin told the Commission that the Secret Service instructed us that they didn't want anyone riding past the president's car, and that we were to ride to the rear of his car about to the bumper. According to Martin, they told us at Love Field right after President Kennedy's plane landed, Johnson's Secret Service people came over to the motorcycle cops and gave us a bunch of instructions. They also ordered us into the weirdest escort formation I've ever seen. Ordinarily, he said, you bracket the car with four motorcycles, one on each side of the fender. But this time, they told the four of us assigned to the president's car there'd be no forward escorts. We were to stay well to the back and not let ourselves get ahead of the car's rear wheels under any circumstances. I've never heard of a formation like that, he said, much less ridden in one. Martin goes on to say they wanted to let the crowds have an unrestricted view of the president. Well, I guess somebody got an unrestricted view of him, all right, Martin said. Martin also claimed that some of those instructions were that the four presidential motorcycle officers were ordered that, under no circumstances, were they to leave their position, regardless of what happened. The redeployment of the motorcycle escort to the rear of the wheels not only gave everyone an unrestricted view of the president, 
it made it easier for anybody to throw anything from an egg to a bomb at him. In a hostile city as Dallas, to configure the motorcade in the way that it was done was more than incompetent. It was actually criminal. The redeployment of the motorcycle escort really left Kendi unprotected from the front, from the side, from all around. It allowed those close enough to him, the people on the curbs, to have an unrestricted and unobstructed opportunity to cause him physical harm. And although the Dallas police claimed that Lawson told them on the evening of the 21st that Kendi didn't want any motorcycles alongside his car, Lawson was forced to admit under oath that he never heard Kendi give that order. The last-minute stripping of the president's protection by Lawson on the evening before his arrival is, to say the least, disturbing. Next time on The End of the Innocence, the JFK assassination, we take a look at what some of the witnesses saw just right before the shooting. We will also ride with President Kennedy right into the ambush. See you next time.